Our next speaker is James R. Compton. He is a retired Marine Corps officer and current doctoral student in the History Department at the University of Montana. He has served three combat tours in Iraq and served six years in East Asia. James is a 1999 graduate of the United States Naval Academy and has an MA in History from the University of Montana. And today he's going to be giving a paper on Mansfield Marines and Mothers. Welcome, James. <laughs> Thank you. Well, thank you very much. It's an honor to be here, and thank you, Diana. It's good to see Haver people here, Rhonda. Okay, nice to see you, uh, as well as my folks, Kim, and my colleague. Look forward to your presentation later today. Uh, so we'll keep it uh, right here in the 20th century, just advancing slightly, about 20 years from Mary Rose's excellent presentation in Bozeman, and also focus on some other Montana figures. And I think you'll see that uh, some uh, Montana women figure very prominently here in this uh, presentation. Let's see if this is right. Hmm. Okay, we'll have to go manual. Talk into the mic, please. Okay. Thank you. And let's see if I can get this to work for me. There we go. All right, this is an idyllic picture of Montana's Bitterroot Valley in 1945. This is in Stevensville, Montana, just south of there, where Ethel Wanacott and her husband Roy will operate their uh, meatpacking business, very small business. They're devout Mormons. They'll have two children. And every morning, Ethel will take a close look at all newspaper clippings that she can and listen to radio broadcasts about information from the Western Pacific and this might seem somewhat odd at first glance. However, like millions of other mothers during World War II, Ethel Wanacott had ample reason to stay informed and involved. Her youngest son, Gilbert E. Wanacott, was fighting with the United States Marines in the 1st Marine Division overseas. And in June, he had just recently completed combat in the very vicious and difficult battle of Okinawa, some of those images of which are appeared on the slide here in front of you. So being victors of that, of course, we're happy, but looking forward at this point in 1945 is rather dismal uh, for the prospects of a young Marine who is facing very difficult combat, probably on the Japanese mainland. So in mid-August, when news and the sudden news of the Japanese surrender is going to be announced, certainly the Marines can't believe it, they're in a total sense or state of disbelief. But also, the Wanacott family back in Stevensville must have felt a profound sense of relief that dreaded invasion of the Japanese mainland would no longer come to fruition. But Wanacott and 53,000 of his other Marine Corps comrades, however, did not immediately return to the uh, comfort of their waiting families. Instead, they deployed as part of an Allied occupation effort to North China, near today's national capital region of Beijing, which you can see in these Marine Corps archival graphics and maps collected from the time. <clears throat> and the Marines initially were welcomed as liberators. When they land on the 30th of September in 1945 at a place called Taku, which if, you're if you know anything about the Opium War is a significant place. <clears throat> but just six days after arrival, they'll discover that this this nice, welcoming environment will change rather quickly as the tensions of a renewed Chinese Civil War start to come to fruition. 
indeed it'll become a rather complex environment uh, for the Marines to experience. And 6,000 miles away back in Stevensville, Montana, Ethel Wanicott, who's reading letters from her son and reading newspaper, newspaper stories and publications like the Missoulian, is going to be confused and incensed by this U.S. intervention that seemed to make no sense to her. And at that moment, in late 1945, Wanicott became one of many mothers to engage in political action. So this moment of public debate over the intervention in North China served as an important catalyst for the return to democratic normalcy in post-war America. Wanicott and others would write senators, such as uh, Senators Wheeler uh, and Murray, and congressmen like Mike Mansfield, like we'll see in a moment. She'll write newspapers, she'll get, become involved in organized citizen groups connected to labor, all rising in grassroots opposition to American intervention in North China at a key moment in late 1945. But rather than pining for a loved one's return, as you can kind of sort of see suggested in this graphic from the Office of War Information on the right, uh, these mothers will frame their arguments in their, in their letters in the language of the Four Freedoms from Franklin Delano Roosevelt and the Atlantic Charter, which was at least nominally agreed upon with Winston Churchill in 1941. And we shall see how the role of propaganda, like again you see this image at the right, impacted this debate rather profoundly. As well as exploring Mike Mansfield's rather, I think, important role as the face of public opposition early in this effort. Now, Ethel Wanicott would pen letters to many people, like I said, but one important voice that she wrote to, again, was Montana's Mike Mansfield. And I think we should take a moment here to explore just why Mansfield was such an important person at this particular juncture. Number one, he had cultivated a rather uh, uh, a reputation for being rather uh, an expert in Far Eastern affairs, particularly foreign affairs. And he came about that by the way of his uh, biography. So in 1922, a young uh, private Mansfield will serve in the United States Marine Corps with the U.S. Asiatic Fleet. He will land in, in mainland China a number of times in 1922. And he is really impressed by what he sees. He becomes very interested in China and really all things in the Far East. And when he returns back to Montana, he decides to study this at the University of Montana, then known as Montana State. And he'll study East Asian history. He'll receive his master's degree there. He will teach courses in Far Eastern history at, uh, in the, early, uh, or the late uh, 30s and early 40s. And as a freshman representative in Congress, elected in 1942, uh, he will then serve on the Foreign Affairs Committee in the House of Representatives. And in 1944, he'll be selected by Franklin Delano Roosevelt to uh, serve as his personal emissary to China and meet with very important figures in the Chinese government and senior American officials there abroad, to include uh, uh, General Lissimo Chiang Kai-shek. So this is a rather important public uh, a very high-profile mission sent uh, for a somewhat surprising representative from the hinterland here abroad to serve as the face of American foreign diplomacy. And here you can see this picture in the lower left-hand corner is from Mansfield on that trip. Uh, this picture is actually in November. His trip will take about six weeks and go well into December. He'll fly over the Himalayas in the C-54 aircraft and, and land in China proper. Uh, rather interesting. 
At the right here, when he returns, you can see some of these names might be difficult to, to see, but I'll read some of them for you. These vital speeches of the day as he delivers his, his report to uh, Franklin Roosevelt, General Marshall, Secretary of State Statenius, some of these other rather important figures of the time. He then lifts and takes sort of the thesis of that report, at least what he can share, and, and shares it out in the community bro more broadly. And here in the vital speeches of the day in 1945, you can see some of these names, Winston Churchill, Charles de Gaulle, Arthur Vandenberg, John Foster Dulles, you know, indeed, titans of foreign policy at the time. So this profile that he has elevated himself to is, is impressive. He's right there with us. It says at the bottom, the best thought of the best minds on current national questions. So being the good Democrat that he was, it's somewhat surprising that he would go in to take on the Truman administration so forcibly in late 1945. Uh, but when 53,000 Marines are landed in North China, as Mansfield learns about in early October by way of reading newspaper, uh, he is uh, very concerned and he emerges as that early vocal incredible critic of the Truman administration's policy. He'll give three very impactful speeches in the House of Representatives from October to December 1945. He'll engage with State Department officials, John Carter Vincent, Dean Adjison, among others. And finally, he'll make his case personally and directly, both through letters to President Truman as well as in a one-on-one -on -one meeting with the President in the Oval Office. Mansfield argued that in a letter, as you can see to the left to President Truman, quote, the sending in of over 50,000 United States Marines to North China is potentially explosive. Our troops should be withdrawn from China at once, end quote. Very unequivocal what he thinks the president should do. But he then very importantly raised the specter of public opinion, not only to President Truman, but also to his colleagues within the House of Representatives, indeed speaking more broadly uh, to the deployed Marines, as we, as we shall see in a moment. Quote, the real issue in China, in the minds of the American people, is intervention. If we decide to intervene, which I pray we do not, we must be prepared to maintain armed forces in China for years to come. End quote. In other words, this is, we're getting into something here that maybe perhaps the American people uh, don't agree with. This is somewhat interesting, again, seeing how he's relatively young in Congress and of the same party. So let's look backwards here for a second and look closer at, at the connection between foreign policy and public opinion in 1945. And we'll look again a, a little bit more broadly at the war itself and its impact. Here we see a picture of Franklin Delano Roosevelt, his fourth inaugural address given from the South here portico of the White House. And he's uh, his son behind him, James Roosevelt, who served in the, in the Marines Navy Cross recipient uh, right there behind him, and, and his young vice president, uh, soon to be inaugurated vice president that day, Harry S. Truman. And as President Truman mentioned in his less than 15 minutes uh, address in his fourth inaugural, he framed America's war aims in rather simple terms. Quote, we shall fight for total victory in war and a just and honorable peace, unquote. Indeed, there was broad consensus about that amongst the American people at the time. But what did winning exactly look like? What did that actually mean in the consciousness of Americans at the time? And what would happen in those liberated territories and even the conquered ones? This was, these questions were far more complex. 
But winning, as reinforced in these images that you can see in front, promulgated by the Office of War Information, uh, and, and through the war loan drives themselves, meant defeating the Axis powers itself. You see rather clearly that picture at center here of what's put out to the, to the Army and the Marine Corps at the time. This is your mission. Stop the Japanese armed forces and the war for you will be over. But also the connection here is very important to anti-fascism. And anti-fascism itself was therefore very central to the definition of winning in the consciousness of Americans. And that was, anti-fascism was also essential to preserving FDR's famous four freedoms. And you can see how closely these uh, evocative Norman Rockwall paintings are matched with the war effort through the Office of War Information. At the center there, you buy war bonds to save freedom of worship and freedom of speech. And ours to fight for, you know, freedom from fear, freedom from want. In other words, anti-fascism, this is why we are fighting, this is why we must defeat the Japanese and the Nazis. But the war also meant fighting for freedom and self-determination in liberated territories as captured in the Atlantic Charter that you see in its image here at center. But in this process, Americans also somewhat turned a blind eye to the post-war ambitions and complications of their allies. You can see this image here at the left, United, the United Nations fight for freedom, and there's a countless number of national flags designed to show that this is more than America fighting this, but those many different flags have different ideas about what the war is about and what it shall be in the post-war order. And I write, I just want to kind of point out the, the front four of these guns, of course, those flags are deemed to be more important in terms of who will represent the post-war order. And you can see the deliberate uh, here uh, efforts of, of Roosevelt, despite Stalin and Churchill's uh, objections to elevate China, that's the Republic of China flag there, to uh, elevate China to become one of these very important post-role countries. Indeed, we see that survive in the United Nations to this day. But wartime sacrifices also profoundly impacted American civic life. And to win the war, the Americans tolerated the temporary suspension of democratic ideals for the larger purposes of victory. And the sacrifice of individual freedoms matched an overall pattern of subservience to the greater war effort. Montanans planted victory gardens, as you can see in this image here to the left, Millions of women entered the workforce in heavy industry, as you can see this original version of Rosie the Riveter from Norman Rockwell, 1943, perhaps a little bit different than her later, uh, more feminized role. Uh, but Americans also tolerated quite a bit government intervention into economic life. Price controls and things like uh, uh, rationing were, were commonplace. But Americans also acquiesced to a concentration of power away from Congress and into the executive branch, and the curtailment of individual rights, most egregiously the forcible relocation and internment of 110,000 persons of Japanese ancestry. And Americans experienced propaganda through the Office of War Information and accepted requirement for the censorship of the news, particularly from the front, but only to win the war. What about after the war? Well, the post-war order was considerably more complex than winning the war. And the steady drumbeat of propaganda, also very importantly, ended 
with the defeat of Japan. And we'll look to this map at right in a second, but first I think it's important to highlight the important political transitions that are taking place amongst the so-called Big Three. And if you went along with Roosevelt, the Big Four. Of course, President Roosevelt will die in office in April. His younger, uh, his, you know, his replacement is going to be Harry S. Truman, a man with very little foreign policy experience. He's only been vice president at this time for a little over 90 days. Rather important point. In July 1945, Winston Churchill will go down at the ballot box, a somewhat shocking electoral defeat in July, and the labor leader, more internally focused, Clement Attlee, will take over. And the last man standing that has been to all these conferences at Yalta, etc., is uh, Joseph Stalin. Obviously somebody of significantly different temperament and probably different post-war ideas. And looking over here to a moment for the map, there's practical uh, problems that the Allies must solve. The darker shaded area there represents where there's sizable amounts of Japanese forces. More than 1.3 million Japanese troops remain uh, very well armed, really not defeated on the battlefield uh, in those positions. And what's going to happen to them is a matter of concern to the Allies. And so they're going to divide up these zones of occupation uh, in, in a practical sense, but also somewhat in a political sense too. Because the Soviet army at this point has already somewhat shown its cards to the Truman administration in Eastern Europe, and so containing the Soviet army in East Asia is a key uh, goal of Truman administration policy at this point. You can see there is kind of small, but the 38th parallel is drawn across the Korean Peninsula, an important geopolitical boundary which still impacts us to this day. But there's also keeping, so keeping China out, or keeping uh, uh, the Soviets out of Japan and China is, is it's important to Truman. On the ground, there's been somewhat of a hiatus in the Chinese Civil War, a united front to fight against the Japanese, uh, especially since 1937. However, there's long-standing friction between these two forces. And it's obvious to all sorts of observers, to include the Americans on the ground at this time, uh, that uh, this sort of fight is is inevitable. And the conditions on the ground are rather dire and important to remember. More than 20 million Chinese citizens will be killed during the Second World War in a fight against Japanese aggression. More than a million will be displaced into the interior. And that area, again, that's where the Japanese are that on the map that's, that's more dark, uh, darker shaded. Uh, this is going to be for seven years, and since July 7, 1937, really no Chinese nationalist government will be there in any meaningful form. So it's a very difficult position that these Marines are going to find themselves in. But the final complication here is that these Marines, again, are not viewing themselves as blunt instruments of national power, but rather as citizens. And they want to say in what their role is going to be here in the post-war war. So with those wartime censorship protocols lifted, Montana Marines will write to their parents, to newspapers, and very importantly, to Congress. And Mike Mansfield, again being the representative from the 1st Congressional District here in Montana at the time, would receive a deluge of letters from Marine servicemen with blunt assessments about conditions in China and expressing serious reservations about what the future would hold for them. Private First Class Warren Peterson of Charlie Company, 1st Battalion, 7th Marines, was a candid and frequent pen pal with Mike Mansfield. Peterson was from Helena. He was skeptical of uh, American motives from the outset and kept Mansfield updated with news uh, from overseas as well as uh, newspaper clippings and feedback from other 
enlisted Marines. Drawing a parallel to the U.S. incursion into Russia in 1919, Peterson wrote, quote, There has been more firing at various points up and down the railroad. As many as five Marines have been shot. I want to know why they've been killed. I want to know why we are here. I want to know why the American people are not told what we are doing here. Is this an archangel expedition to save China from communism? Unquote. Again, very good questions. And by the way, the Marines are noticing that they are securing beachheads, again in Peterson's words, for Chinese nationalist forces and the redeployment of half a million Chinese nationalist troops up into this somewhat vacuous region of North China. And that re-emerging Chinese civil war was not lost. Again, upon the millions of servicemen, to include the U.S. Army soldiers and uh, Army Air Corps airmen, of why this demobilization is taking so long and is so slow, and they turn rather quickly to political activism. If I could bring your attention to this image here on the left, notice the stamp, no boats, no votes, and then the uh, get us home has been written there by uh, Sergeant Paul Armstrong. Okay. This no boats, no votes stamp will appear on thousands of letters coming from the Pacific here in late 1945 and throughout 1946. An enterprising uh, a young postal clerk and a number of his colleagues in the Tokyo uh, mail office will, will take this on. But this idea obviously promulgates much further throughout the Pacific, as you can see on this example from Guam at the right, and actually probably originated in Manila. Are you going to have a Merry Christmas? No boats, no votes. Note that rather prominent arrow and notice what it's pointing at. It's pointing at the Capitol Dome. So in other words, Congress, with this midterm election coming up in 1946, you better pay attention because if uh, we are, we're paying closely, uh, close attention to who is, is trying to get us home and, and who isn't. So somewhat of an interesting, different take on the greatest inter, uh, generation, as you can see. And while Mansfield and awaiting families received pointed letters from their deployed Marines and soldiers and airmen, particularly those Marines from China, the uncensored news, and, and particularly uncensored news correspondence, will make a real impact here, delivering rather discouraging stories from North China right into the living rooms here of awaiting Montana families. Here's an example from my hometown newspaper, the Haver Daily News, in, in November. Tension at Chengwangdao growing, U.S. Marines' position in civil war of, of China remains awkward. And note the map there at the right, which rather highlights the, where the Marines are located, the strength of the communists, etc. And then over at the right, you can see this example here of a, the Billings Gazette from the same day, November 5th, really highlighting the, the communist victories that are occurring in the Northeast. Of course, these are rather more uh, forcefully stated than is reality at this point. But in the perception of the people reading the stories is what really matters here. They think this is a very difficult spot and they can see their sons becoming involved in something quite different rather quickly. And so with Mansfield's public warnings and dire war news from the newspapers and letters from their son, Montana mothers will pick up their pens and take action in rather sizable numbers. And there's hundreds of letters in the Mansfield archives to this extent, a lot of them in the Murray papers lot uh, in the Wheeler papers. But rather than simply arguing for the return of their sons, the language they use is quite insightful. And these letters leverage the wartime arguments of those four freedoms in the Atlantic Charter, reinforced so forcibly by the Office of War Information. And let's return to Ethel Wanicott, who we, who we opened with today. And as you can see, that example of her letter written at the right, she writes, quote, 
I gave my son proudly to fight for our country, but not to fight China's civil war. My son tells me 19 Marines have been killed outside the city of Tianjin, and he has seen enough war and hell. I feel the voice of one Montana mother should be enough to command your attention." Unquote. Clear, again, point towards uh, political accountability. But here's a couple other points that I pulled out of other, le other letters. Quote, we just finished writing a, a, fighting a war against the worst militarist war machine. Are our men to fight in a new war with Japanese soldiers as their allies? Unquote. Again, underscoring how strongly that anti-fascist message had been received uh, by the citizens of the United States in, by 1945. Quote, China should take care of her own internal affairs, unquote, in a clear nod towards the Atlantic Charter's self-determination. And finally, quote, we demand that the government carry out the ideals of our greatest president, Franklin D. Roosevelt, stop helping put into power reactionary governments all over the world. That is not what our sons fought for. Again, that sort of ideal of freedom that was emphasized so heavily during the war. So with public opinion firmly opposed to direct military intervention in China, the Truman administration moved to clarify that murky U.S. position in December 1945. And in doing so, Truman played a rather astute, game-changing political card. He would send perhaps the most respected man in all of America, General George C. Marshall, as a special presidential envoy to China. And here you can see Marshall, and this is the courtyard of the Pentagon, which was, had been constructed just a couple years prior. Finally, at the end of the war, he has been uh, rewarded by retirement, and he's going to have a, a medal pinned on his chest by President Truman. But by the time this crisis happens, Truman realizes he has to do something special. So the very first day into Marshall's retirement, Truman will call him on the phone and ask him to serve as his representative there for a, a, really an unspecified amount of time, but he knows that it's going to be months, if not years. And this quintessential public servant responds to his, to his uh, commander-in-chief with a very simple, yes, Mr. President, which tells you a lot about that man. Very interestingly, Mike Mansfield is also lobbying somewhat for this job. Of course, he wants to return to China as that special presidential representative, which he had already done once. And uh, the previous ambassador, by the way, had nominated Mansfield for this role. And so this very day, that in fact, the day after this image, but the very day that uh, Truman will call Marshall, Mansfield is in the White House for that important one-on-one -on -one meeting. And uh, I think Mansfield was probably disappointed not to be selected, but he did support Truman's uh, nomination of Marshall rather forcefully in the public as well as in a private letter. And something else I think reveals a bit about Mansfield's, uh, a bit of his more private ambition at the time. He thought nothing of giving advice to General Marshall about exactly how he should perform his mission, mm -hmm. which I think takes a, a good amount of guts when you consider he's somewhat 20, 20 years younger, you know, and uh, Marshall had just essentially orchestrated the Allied victory in the Second World War. So in conclusion, Mike Mansfield, I think, played a very important role in opposition to American intervention in North China. He raised that very important early alarm to its potential for danger and engaged the Truman administration early and often. Less appreciated, however, is, is the role he played as a touch point for thousands of Montanans eager to engage in their democracy. And at the conclusion of a titanic war that Americans fought for freedom and democracy, perhaps it was appropriate that Marines and mothers would organize, debate, and help shape American post-war foreign policy. For Warren Peterson, 
Ethel and Gilbert Wanacott and countless other Montana Marines and family members intervention in North China was more than a moral, anti-communist or proto-Cold War position. It was profoundly personal. And these unlikely political actors shaped U.S.-China policy at a key moment in 1945. When the trap lines of counterinsurgency, nation-building, and regional conflict menacingly lurked in the Chinese swamp. And in the restoration of American democracy, their voices, very importantly, were heard. I'd just like to conclude with this image here, side by side, of the final resting places of Gilbert Wancott and his mother, Ethel. Here on the left, this is in the Bitterroot Valley and Victor Cemetery. And I think this suggests a great deal about the relationship between a Marine and his mother, who did so much to ensure his safe return. And that right is the grave of Mike Mansfield, who desired to be remembered only for his service as a private in the U.S. Marine Corps. Perhaps this marine identity, which Mansfield, Mansfield held so dear, sheds light upon why he so forcefully stepped into this debate against intervention in 1945. Thank you very much, and I think we'll...